Something spooky is happening in a house in Enfield, London. A mother and her four children are being plagued by the supposed spirit of a violent old man who is possessing her youngest daughter, Janet, and making things fly around the house. The solution? Call expert demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren to verify the haunting and possibly end it. But the Warrens are being plagued by a darkness of their own, and it's up to Lorraine to confront and conquer this darkness before it kills her, her husband, and the Hodgson family in the critically acclaimed horror sequel, The Conjuring 2. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Caleb Lachey. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday, and welcome to the 139th episode of the Filmgasm podcast, the flagship show of Filmgasm Productions that explores horror and genre films of all shapes and sizes. Just in time for Friday's release of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, Caleb and I are here to dissect and discuss 2016's The Conjuring 2, one of the most successful horror sequels in film history. Uh, There's no rewind today, so let's dive right in. Back in 2019, Austin and I did an episode on The Conjuring for episode 17. It's been a while since we've sailed these waters, and I've forgotten how creepy these movies are. Uh, Conjuring 2, when did you first see this one? Uh, I was delayed, actually, on seeing this one, because I want to say it was a 2016 it came out. I was, I was in boot camp when the damn movie came out. So I missed this theatrical one, and then on my first one on Nimitz, someone, they were playing it on... Um, the TV, when the Navy, when you go on deployment, they have channels plugged in that just play movies all day. Cool. And, yeah. And um, sure enough, I came off of a watch one day to Conjuring 2 playing. The guys, the guys watching, like, hey, have you seen this yet? And I was like, no. All do you'll like if you like the first one. So I, because, you know, at that point, everyone knew my love for horror. <laughs> so I ended watching it. And yeah, I, I loved it. Not the most ideal setting to watch it, but I ended up really liking it. Sweet. I, I don't really have a story. I went and saw it, and that was it. <laughs> like, I didn't really have a... I was playing at the movies. I went, and I haven't seen it since then. I watched it for the second time for this show, and it's a it's an enjoyable, creepy watch. Like, it's definitely one of the better ones of this franchise. Yeah. Well, I mean, I stand by what I, I wrote back to you a long time ago when you did the whole Russ Craven thing, and I quickly emailed you. Uh, uh, James Wan, like, you know, he has three franchises on his boat, and he knows what his upcoming film might be for. Who the fuck knows? Um, and it, in all of the cases, it's very evident when he directs because to me, they're the strongest films that are in each franchise, and it's very the most true in Conjuring, I think. Um, one and two, regardless of how I feel about the overall universe, because I do think like a lot, most of the spinoffs aren't that great. Um, the first two, the first two Conjurings are fantastic horror films uh, by him. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I'm kind of surprised how like easy this franchise was able to branch out. I mean, not a lot of you know. There's always a lot of promises with franchises, but rarely does it actually work out. Like, is there, I think just the Crooked Man is like the only Conjuring movie that never happened. Yeah, they keep talking about it. They're like they haven't stopped talking about it. I don't think I don't think it's gonna happen. I don't want it to happen. Yeah, it doesn't need to happen. But I mean, 
we've got you know three Annabelle movies, The Nun, The Curse of La Llorona, which I think is the by far the weakest link of this whole thing. Uh, and now we're getting the third Conjuring. It's a very interesting, very profitable franchise. Like these are all like six financially successful. It's quite nice, quite exciting. Yeah, it's. I think it speaks a lot to like just Ron's craft as a filmmaker, and um, behind the camera and. Big, I'll get more to when we talk about the movie, but uh, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmer as the characters, you know, regardless of what you think about the Warrens in real life, um, I know they're kind of controversial nowadays. Um, they do a really good job in these movies, and I think a lot of people go to see those two. Um, they really do bring a lot of heart and warmth to uh, a lot of the creepy shit that happens in both these movies. Well, in the movies, you know, it's like in the movies, they it, this is real. Like, these are demons. These are monsters attacking families. So we see them as heroes. We see them as, you know, selfless people who are using their gifts to save people from otherworldly dangers. In real life, it's very difficult to verify whether any of this shit actually happened. And it is probably more likely that they were con men, which sucks. I don't want to believe that, but it's hard to ignore. It, yeah, it really is hard to ignore. And um I, you know like just full disclosure i i personally believe in the paranormal stuff. i know you know this but for the fans listening i believe in the paranormal and all that stuff um and i as a kid growing up did think they were doing it for the right reasons and blah blah, blah. and as i've gotten older and really look into it shortly after like the first one came out made me wonder then like were they doing it for the right reasons or in real life were they just calling on just trying to make money I don't know. They didn't seem to make a lot of it. I mean, they weren't exactly, you know, living large. Uh, They lived comfortably for, what, 70 standards? Yeah, that's true. (sighs) I don't know. I I used to believe pretty firmly in the paranormal. Uh, I've leaned a little bit more out of it in recent years. Uh, There's some things I, I question, but overall, I, I really do need, like, evidence now you know it's hard to take things on faith that you know where i am in my life right now so i don't know yeah i know i'm with you because so many times i watch like i'm subscribed to all the different you know paranormal youtube channels like you know top five top 15s um mr nightmare like all those guys and they'll do you know those videos like evidence and blah blah, blah. and sometimes i'm watching it and i'm like that doesn't tell me you know, you can fake that. But then, like, every so often I watch one, I'm like, no, that one is creepy. That one might be legit. Like, there's the occasional one that sneaks through, but just, you know, not all the time, though. There's just one video I watched about this guy who was having weird uh, paranormal experiences in his sleep. So he set up a camera, and this, like, doll came to life at night and was, like, he got pictures of it, like, walking around his apartment and, like, standing on his chest. And, shit. and that one was very hard to to kind of just explain away. Like I had, you know, I mean, I think about that one from time to time. Like if he did fake that, how in the hell did he fake that? Yeah. No. Yeah. There's definitely some that are like, I don't think he faked that. Cause it's seen, it comes off like very realistic. Well, um, and he turned down like multiple magazine offers to do like interviews and articles. Like he turned down a lot of money because he was afraid that this thing would like go into, you know, overdrive if he paid more attention to it. So he gave up like, millions 
to sh- try to shut this down. So that to me shows that this might have been real. Yeah. I think also I'm coming from a place like the house I grew up in had some really weird, unexplained shit happen growing up. My parents started renovating it. Um, and since we've moved out, the last update I got on that place was apparently it can't maintain an owner anymore. <laughs> People just keep moving in and out of it. So that's also where I'm coming from is that there was some weird shit that happened. And the house I grew up in as a kid, I know my sister saw some like strange stuff happen that she won't admit to. Well, I guess, yeah, it is different. It's it's different if you've lived through some shit. I, I totally understand that. And the stories you've told me are fucking haunting. So I, um, I get that. Yeah, no disrespect to anyone who's actually experienced something. I just personally haven't experienced enough. Like anything I would consider to be like real. Yeah, well, and... I under I honestly understand people don't believe because like I said, like you watch a lot of like the for example, it seems like everyone in America loves it, but me. But fucking like the ghost adventure type shows and ghost hunters, like how does that prove anything? Like half the time they're like, Did you see that as the camera shaking in a found footage like fashion? And I'm like, no, because you can't keep a camera still and it's not even a found footage movie, you assholes. Keep your fucking camera still. Or like my favorite, did you hear that? No, I'm not there with you. I'm watching on my TV with a soundbar that I'm currently having turned down so I don't wake my neighbors up. So no, I didn't hear what the fuck you just heard. You're not alone. I hate that shit too. Uh, it's annoying. And it's mostly just watching idiots scream at one another and in a, you know, in like a night vision setting. There's never anything, like we never get anything out of that. I, I have tried so hard because I know there's a huge following behind these shows and these a lot of these guys go to conventions, right? And I have tried constantly every so often, like, you know what? I'll try. I'll, I'll give it a chance this time. And I do and I just go, nope, still not. Nope, nope. Mm-mm. <laughs> I, I am a sucker. I look, I know I say that, but I am in that group of people that's a sucker for those shows like uh, Paranormal Witness and stuff when it's like the talking head one. Mm-hmm. When someone's sitting in a chair, much like I am now, and they're recounting their experience and they get the traumatic reenactment of it, I am a sucker for that one. But I get story essentially, you know? Yeah. In a reenactment that is usually pretty good for TV. That's good. I think really, I just, you know, I, I need to. I need to experience it for myself to really understand it. And I'm honestly, I'm afraid to. Tried to make that jump. You know, I'm not going to go buy a Ouija board and tempt fate. I'm not doing that shit. Like, you know, I'm, I'm of the mindset, like, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but I won't say, you know, I'm not going to say Candyman in the mirror five times. Yeah. No, oh, dude, you're talking to a guy, like, if I ever get married and have kids, right? My kid talks about an imaginary friend, comes home with a Ouija board, wants to be like, I'm going to go play a swim trainer with my friends. I don't have a child anymore, okay? I don't have a child. I don't have a house. I, something's not lasting, so I'm not inviting that evil shit into my life. <laughs> uh, I heard a cool. I heard a funny joke. There was this. Uh, this guy walks into his parent into his kid's bedroom. The kid's on top of the bed and says, "Daddy, there's a monster under my bed." Dad looks under the bed. There's a kid under the bed. Kid goes, "Dad, there's a monster on top of my bed." And he's like, well, you two just go to bed. I'm, I fucking hate having twins. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Uh, 
So before we get into the film, let's talk a bit about the real-life case of the Enfield poltergeist. It's an allegedly true story that occurred in London in 1977. I found an article from the website History versus Hollywood that does a direct comparison between the events in the film and what happened to the Hodgson family in real life. And the, the film really does embellish on almost everything. <laughs> this, the Warren's involvement particularly was pretty minimal compared to the film. But you can't do a Conjuring 2 movie where the Warrens show up for half a day and then leave. Yeah, it look. I know when, as we discussed the real life case here, uh, when horror films do the whole based on, inspired by, loosely made based off of one sentence article in this obscure newspaper type movie, that what I'm seeing is going to be heavily embellished. But it's almost, it is almost like a negative, a minor negative for this film the amount of embellishment, because at least the first one, they picked a case that they were actually involved in. And they did actually, like, they were heavily involved in that one. But this one, they just were like, infield, let's get them international and get them involved in something that they literally were there for, like, a day, not invited, and were told to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's a lot of embellishment in this one just to get the Warrens involved in, like, an international case for the movie. Well, and the movie, you know, paints them as the heroes who stopped the demon that was you know, hurting this family. And in reality, it's probably some kids bullshitting that got way out of hand and a lot of paranormal investigators wanted to make a buck off this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's go through this article. Um, when did the Enfield haunting begin? Uh, Peggy Hodgson, the mother of four, uh, says that the en- the haunting of her home in Enfield, London began on the evening of August 30th, 1977. It was on that night that her daughter Janet told her that her brother's beds were wobbling. The next evening, Mrs. Hodgson heard a loud noise from upstairs. She entered her children's bedroom and saw a chest of drawers moving. She tried to stop the heavy oak chest as it moved toward the door, including that an invisible force was trying to trap them in the room. And we see this happen in the film. This is a you know, pretty big moment. Uh, that happened to me in real life. You bet your ass I'm moving out of that city. <laughs> like I'm never going back to London again. I'm getting as far away as possible. Uh, but, you know, four kids and you're on welfare. It's hard to just pick up and leave. You know, it's very hard to move. Yeah. Yeah. I hate I'd hate to be in that situation where I have no choice but to stay in the haunted house. Yeah, because I would even exhaust options like my car or something before I think haunted house i'm staying in it it's crazy how like the ghost never goes for the kill you know like if i'm an angry ghost and i want to make myself known i'm killing one of those children like day one like i'm dropping that chest on them in their sleep jesus i'm just saying like if i'm a haunting i want to be scary i want to make myself known it's gonna be hard to ignore that one it just, that never happens in movies, in real life. Like, ghosts never kill anybody. Well, yeah, because think about it. Ghosts kill someone. It's like the Shyamalan effect. It peaks early. It's not scary after that because it's killed someone. That's, that's, yeah, but then, like, even in, like, towards the end of the movie, like, rarely do ghosts actually get, like, you know, kill somebody. Demons <laughs> kill people all the time, but ghosts rarely, in my, in my experience. Yes. Ghosts are just angry. They just want to annoy people. Demons actually want to kill people. That's different. 
Well, even in this movie, the villain is a demon and it doesn't kill anybody. Well, it's because they had to decide up for the really shitty spinoff. But the spinoff was a prequel. The pre whatever. <laughs> All right. Anyway. I so, didn't like it, let's just, just know that. <laughs> uh Janet Hodgson recalled uh in a poltergeist documentary later on. Quote, it started in a back bedroom. The chest of drawers moved and you could hear shuffling. Uh, thinking that it was Janet and her siblings making the noise, she said that her mother told them to go to sleep. Quote, we told her what was going on and she came to see it for herself. She saw the chest of drawers moving. When she tried to push it back, she couldn't. Okay, so we confirmed that the chest moving actually happened. Yes. Did they hear a strange knocking coming from the walls? Yes, they did. The knocking would fade in and out as it ran down the wall, supposedly frightening the family so much they all slept in the same room at the light hunt. So they were hearing a knocking coming from the walls. That happened. Uh, did dozens of crosses turn upside down? No. no. It's a cool scene for the movie, but... Yeah, it is cool. Uh, so crosses did not turn upside down on the walls. Uh, traditionally, the upside-down cross is a symbol of evil. Uh St. Peter was crucified upside down because he felt he was not worthy to be crucified the same way as Jesus Christ. So the inverted cross has become kind of like the antithesis of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see it in movies all the time. Uh, Did the mother, Peggy, go to the neighbor's house for help? Yes. Uh, she She went next door to her neighbors, Vic and Peggy Nottingham, who offered to go into the home to investigate. Vic went in, heard the knocking on the walls, began to feel a little freaked out himself. Did Janet Hodgson... I'll say say that and the cops investigating and leaving also happened. The cops did, yeah. That's what this is noted as the most, uh, like to have the most uh, evidence of any haunting in history. Like there's so much, so much evidence, so much uh, collaborative evidence. The, The cops, that's that's a big giveaway. I like the cops would be willing to kind of give put their careers on the line to support this. Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty telling. Yeah. So I correctly, it was like how the movie went down. Essentially, like they were called, they went in to investigate some weird shit happened while they were in there, and they said, "All right, nope, we're not the ones to help with this. <laughs> we'll get you in contact with those who can." <laughs> Reminds me of that scene in the Casper movie. When Ray runs out of the house, like the Ghostbuster, and he's like, who are you going to call? Someone else. And takes off. <laughs> oh, what a... Don't you cops that do... This is out of our jurisdiction. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, can you imagine being a, a Bobby that night investigating a disturbance at a house, and you just see a fucking chair fly across the room, turn and fly back into the kitchen? Like, you were not prepared for that. This is not in your, you know, normal nine to five. This is new. I have a picture in my head of like a cup with coffee and just saying a donut. So he's like so stereotypical right now. Just like, all right, what's going on? And as he's doing that, the chair just flies. He's just standing there, you know, open mouth. Just what the fuck? Nope. Mm-mm, nope. I am not ready. I have no my coffee or my donut. I am leaving. If I was the if I was the ghost, just to be petty, I'd slap the donut out of his hand. He could have the coffee, but I'd slap the donut. Cops start shooting at the ghost. In America, yeah. 
that's exactly how that would go down. Um, so did Janet Hodgson really levitate? This is a big one. Uh, there's pictures of Janet Hodgson supposedly levitating. And personally, I, I call bullshit on these photographs. Like, she is clearly jumping. I was like, it's the old school fucking, cam- you know, before we had cameras on our phone. And you could take actual, like, photos rapidly. Yeah. If you just do it rapid enough on those cameras, you can make it look like you're levitating. Well, and if you put all these photos, like, on the site, they have all of these photographs together. And she clearly is leaping out of her bed. Like, it is so obvious. Yeah. The on the cameras, if you change the um, I think it's the f stop, yeah, the f stop, and if you change it to just the right one and you start hit and you hit the button, it'll start taking pictures rapidly and the then fourth, it freezes them. The fourth photo in the set is the most famous, it's the one that has her like in the middle of the room. But if you look at the first photograph, the origin point is her standing in her bed and then it goes up slightly, then over again, and then to the, to the middle of the room. As if you know she were jumping. <laughs> it's like the fact that anyone sees this as levitation is really amazing to me. Yeah, another thing I see about cameras, I know that you can fake you can fake that. So it's questionable. Um, she says the levitation was scary because you didn't know where you were going to land. Uh, Janet, I don't, I don't know. About you that. didn't know. Well, I would assume Janet, you're landing on the floor of your house. Like what's you're not landing in a pit of lava or a fucking pool of knives. Like <laughs> sometimes when I hop, I don't know where the earth's gonna be when I get when I land. I just don't know. <laughs> that sounds like some shit Forrest Gump would say. Right? Like it's a ghost. It ain't taking you outside the house, Janet. Right? <laughs> I want. I'm trying to sound like Frank Gosling in the Nice Guys with Janet. <laughs> you really have to cuss. Yes, I do, Janet. It's very cathartic, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay did demonologist ed and lorraine warren really investigate the enfield poltergeist poltergeist case kind of yes they were there no they were not there long uh so the film is his build is based on the true case files of the warrens which i guess if you know ed started a case file it, it is a case for them sure uh so they briefly investigated the Enfield poltergeist in the summer of 1978 and were just two of many paranormal investigators to pop into that neighborhood looking for a story. And not just a story, looking for an opportunity to make themselves known. This is a very famous case. Yes, and they were also the least wanted one, too, I should point out. The Brits yeah, did not want them. <laughs> they were, you know, it's a stiff upper lip society. We, they did not want attention They wanted, you know, a solution, according to Peggy. Uh, The Warrens wanted to make this a, you know, even a more famous case and kind of milk this. And the Hodgins were like, well, we don't want to do that. So uh, jog on. But uh, (laughs) let's see what let's see what went down. Most articles about the Enfield Poltergeist case don't even mention the Warrens, leading one to conclude that their role in the case was significantly dramatized for The Conjuring 2. In fact, Guy Lyon Playfair, one of the original paranormal investigators and the most British name I have ever heard, says... The, uh, the last podcast, guys, when they did this haunting, they made so much fun of his name. And Guy he- Lyon Playfair the Fourth Esquire. Like, it's just it's ridiculous. It sounds like it's ripped right out of Downton Abbey. 
Um, well, they, they he said that they um, he came forward when the before the movie was going to come out and said that the Warrens had showed up, quote, uninvited and only stayed for a day. He also said that Ed Warren told him he could make him a lot of money off of the case. Now, this could be just, a, you know, a, a situation of another paranormal, paranormal investigator besmirching the Warren's name to try to make himself look better. That could be the case here. I mean, no one else really, I don't think there's, does anyone cor- corroborate that with Mr. Playfair? Not that I know of. The only thing that's fact that I know from looking into the actual case is that they weren't really, the Warrens just showed up. They weren't invited to this one. And yeah, they only their day got the hint from everyone involved and mm-hmm. left. As far as like what he said to Playfair, that's that's just what he's saying. That's what Playfair's saying. I don't, there's no other corroboration, no other, nothing else to back that up. Yeah. So Ed Warren touched on the case in Gerald Brittle's book, The Demonologist, stating, quote, Inhuman spirit phenomena were in progress. Now, you couldn't see the dangerous, you you couldn't record the dangerous, threatening atmosphere inside that little house, but you could film the levitations, teleportations, and dematerializations of people and objects that were happening there, not to mention the many hundreds of hours of tape recordings made of these spirit voices speaking out loud in the rooms. As the case became widely viewed as a hoax, some saw it as proof that the Warrens themselves were frauds. I don't think the two go hand in hand. I think they could easily be duped as much as the next person. That doesn't necessarily mean that their motives are fraud. I'll say they, yeah, I'll say they could have been duped. There's been many times. And not just like them. Like if you really look like a lot of famous hauntings, there's so many like evidence on both sides of it to be right or wrong, right? Like not just even infield. You look at the fucking Amityville case, man. Like, there's such as much evidence proving that that shit is haunted as there is that it's not haunted and the let's just made it up. Like it, you know, to say like, well, because it's clearly looking like fraud, the warrants are frauds for us. Like, no, they could have been duped. They could have been. And I don't, I don't didn't know the ones personally. They could have been on upstanding people that did very much want to help. Or they could have been fucking con artists. We, we don't, no one knows, but then, and obviously the church, and as we know, the Catholic Church ain't going to say shit. Yeah, they're the last part of people I'm going to go to for moral authority. Yeah, so, um, no, just, just say, like, based off this case alone, no, that, that's, that's, that's doing what we do best in America, it seems, and pulling your fucking own conclusion out of something that doesn't actually exist. My issue with Amityville is that everyone goes straight to, you know, when asked why would the Lutzes make it up, everyone goes straight to uh, money. Like, they did it to profit off their story. But they didn't. (laughs) Like, by giving up, you know, by losing the Amityville house, they lost so much money and equity. They lost their, you know, their credit score went went to the fucking floor. They lost everything. So where's, like, how is that motivation? (laughs) The, the money thing, I don't think it's true at all in any of these cases. Because look, if you, like you said, they Andrea, look at any like modern day documentaries on that when they feature some of like the Lutz kids, they're not making money. Like they are not rich. They lost everything when they left that house suddenly. So, no, it, there's no way in hell they did it for money. They're not executive producers on Amityville 19. You know, they're not, they, they don't make anything from that. 
So yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, next question was Janet Hodgson really possessed by a dead man named Bill Wilkins? Well, that really depends on who you talk to. Uh, so the film was to some degree inspired by audio tapes of the real Janet Hodgson speaking in a creepy voice claiming to be possessed by Bill Wilkins, a man who died in the living room of that house several years prior. Quote, just before I died, I went blind, said the voice, and then I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and I died in the chair in the corner downstairs. An interview with Janet Hodgson at the time suggests that the idea of talking in a possessed voice may have been encouraged and planted in Janet's mind by paranormal investigator Maurice Gross, who we see in the film as a firm believer and kind of the first guy on the scene. Uh, when asked when the voices started, Janet said that one night Morris Gross told them, all we need now is the voices to talk. Almost immediately following this suggestion, they did. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's pretty telling. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just thinking, like, yeah, that's really telling that. I mean, to the movie's credit, uh, they do kind of briefly touch on her faking it before, you know, obviously they go full in with their ending. But, you know, they make it to where, like, she's doing the voice, but when they're not looking at her mm. and stuff like that. Yeah. So they kind of play into it, but not really in the movie. Yeah, that's that's tough to you know. I can I can only talk to the spirits when you're not looking. That's some you know. That's like Harry Houdini, you know. Meet like spiritualism bullshit. You know, remember like he you know about him like debunking spiritualists. Like he had a he made a hobby out of that. Yeah, he would go to seances purposely to debunk them. Yeah, this feels like something he would just be like, nope, horse shit, and then like unmask. <laughs> the truth i could see that um so janet hodgson uh years four years after the events of this uh did an, did an interview and said i felt used by a force that nobody understands i really don't like to think about it too much i'm not sure the poltergeist was truly evil it was almost as if it wanted to be part of our family it didn't want to hurt us it had died there and wanted to be at rest the only way it could communicate was through me and my sister Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Kids like to fuck around. And when kids get trapped in a lie, most of the time what they do is they dig deeper. They double down. Yep. <laughs> and when you are, you know, being interviewed by BBC and being told, like, what did the voices say? You can't just, you're not going to, you know, you're too scared to admit the truth and just, you're going to keep going. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I, I get it. It's just, I don't know. It's an interesting haunting, a very interesting case, because, yeah, there's a lot of shit that doesn't add up with that one. Next question. Did the man who allegedly, allegedly possessed Janet die in the downstairs living room years earlier? Yes. In exploring Enfield, Bill Wilkins' son, Terry, confirmed that, yes, his father, Bill Wilkins, had died in that armchair after suffering a hemorrhage. So it's weird that Janet would know that. I mean, this was not, you know, the, the internet wasn't there. You couldn't just, like, look this shit up in your living room. You had to, like, go to county records and find this out. So, right. weird that you would just know that off the top of her head. Yeah, I'm sure the British laws are the same as uh, American laws with housing. They can't tell you for some reason who died in the house before you. 
I thought they had to. I thought like they the agents had to. No, it's like if it depends on if it's murder or not. It's really dumb. It should be. If anybody died in the house, I want to know. I don't care what the like. I don't care how. I want to know. <laughs> yeah, because I'm pretty sure we weren't told about the house I grew up in that someone died, and then yeah, we had the weird shit happen. Oh, we started renovating it. That's so terrifying. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it depends on like if they're murdered or not. I think it's like the the rule. I'm pretty sure there was a body buried under um, my house in Maryland when I lived there. There was a we had this like drain in the, um, in the basement that the dogs would always bark at. Uh, it was always cold down there. Uh, when my uncle went back to paint the place, he almost got killed by uh, like a rake fell on him in the garage, almost stabbed him. Uh, he heard like really creepy noises. My like his dog wouldn't go in the living room. Like he wrote a whole horror novel about this, <laughs> but like. Uh, the more I learn about that house, the more I'm, I'm thinking like that place was really fucking haunted <laughs> and nobody told me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to ask more questions about that. <laughs> um, did the paranormal activity begin after they played with a Ouija board? Yes. According to Janet Hodgson, who says that she and her sister played with a Ouija board right before this all started. And that's, you know, that tends to be the start of a lot of this shit. It's how the exorcist started, the true story. Don't play with the Ouija board is really, I think, the message we can take away from all of this. Yeah, stop buying it. Stop making it a game. It is weird that you can, like, start a horrific haunting, summon ghosts from something you can get at Target for 25 bucks. <laughs> weird to me. Something made by Hasbro. <laughs> Has... God, I'm telling you, any anyone ever brings one to my house, I'm chunking it out my fucking window. I nearly bought a used one at a flea market. I was close. She just she wouldn't take like I it was it was twenty. I offered ten. She wouldn't take it. She wouldn't haggle. So I said no. But if she'd haggled, I might have picked up a used Ouija board and had that around. And who knows what shit I could have stirred up. <laughs> or me destroying it in the hopes that it. Dies forever. Um, did furniture really move? Perhaps the most credible claim of furniture moving in the home involved the policewoman, WPC Carolyn Heaps, who signed an affidavit to the effect that she had witnessed an armchair levitate approximately half an inch and move close to four feet across the floor. In all, there were more than 30 witnesses to similar strange incidents in the house. They'd witnessed objects flying around, cold spots, physical assaults, water appearing on the floor, graffiti, and perhaps most incredibly, uh, spontaneous combustion. So weird shit happened, and a cop signed an affidavit saying that she did indeed see this happen. That's interesting. I mean, that's putting your career on the line. Yeah. Well, that's like the Brits just do that all the time. <laughs> They're just... Yeah, we see weird shit. Let's sign it. I don't think any and being a cop in any country, any culture, gives you an air of superiority, gives you a sense of authority. And by saying that you believe that you witnessed a chair fly across the room, you witnessed paranormal activity, that in some circles can completely erase your credibility. So to, to lay that all on the line for a family you don't even know is pretty hard you know pretty hard to ignore i mean that's good evidence that this happened yeah 
Yeah, no, the, the police stuff makes me believe a little bit more because, yeah, I feel them to sign something saying, I, I am swearing on my badge. I saw this. <laughs> uh, next question. What caused the Enfield poltergeist events to quiet down? The real Janet Hudson believes it was a priest's 1978 visit to the family's home that caused the haunting to calm down. Parentheses, not the Warrens. <laughs> the occurrences did not end completely. I love the shade thrown in this article. Like, it was a priest. It wasn't the Warrens, just FYI. It wasn't them. It, was a it wasn't them. Just a regular priest from, you know, the same country. Peggy still heard noises in the house from time to time, and Janet's younger brother, Billy, who lived there until his mother passed, remarked that you always felt like you were being watched. So, priest apparently didn't do a bang-up job. <laughs> if no. It was still hanging around. Sounds like Billy got the most fucked. He... He was the youngest, it sounds like, and got stuck dealing with it. Yeah, he lived there till his mother passed away, and he always just kind of felt like there was something lingering around him. That's terrifying. That's worse than, you know, fucking demon flying out of the wall to me. The idea that the shoe could always drop at any moment, that, that's worse, in my opinion. Yeah, dude, if I, dude, Billy's a better person than me, because if I was, like, still, like, you know, I'd move back in with my parents or my mom until the day she passed, and the house that's, like, that haunted i'd be like i'm sorry but i'm not doing it it's like love your mom but you're here coming to me i'm putting you in a home i ain't going to that fucking house <laughs> yeah uh next question is it possible that the whole thing was a hoax according to this website yes it's the first word yes it's possible uh two experts from the society for psychical research spr caught the children bending spoons themselves they also found it strange why no one was allowed in the room when Janet was talking in her possessed voice. That's hilarious. Reminds me of Invisible Boy from Mystery Men. You know, he can only become invisible when nobody's watching him. <laughs> uh, Janet herself admitted that some of the Enfield haunting events were fabricated. In 1980, she told ITV News, quote, Oh, yeah, once or twice we faked things just to see if Mr. Gross and Mr. Playfair would catch us. They always did. That's a weird cavalier attitude to take towards a demon haunting your house. <laughs> Let's fuck with him. <laughs> During an uh, interview with Margaret and Janet Hodgson that aired as part of a TV special in 1980, Janet asked, was asked how it feels to be haunted by a poltergeist. It's not haunted, Janet replied, smiling. Her sister smiles in astonishment as if Janet just gave up a secret, whispers, shut up, through muted giggles. That's on TV. <laughs> that, was, that was filmed. <laughs> Janet later said that she didn't feel the poltergeist was evil, meaning that the house wasn't necessarily haunted. I love that they're, they're interviewing the kids and the guy's like, so how does it feel being haunted? And she's like, it's not haunted. What are you talking about? And the other one's like, shut, shut up. We're doing a thing here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Tom Holland. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Anything MCU asked. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you in the new Spider-Man? Yes. Shut up. <laughs> this is interesting. Like the, so, like the Enfield Poltergeist story, a slew of similar accounts emerged in the years following the 1973 release of The Exorcist. You know, once people saw that movie, suddenly people started looking over their shoulder a bit more and everyone started thinking their house was haunted too or their little girl was possessed. Some argue the film gave birth to a culture of paranormal hoaxes carried out by those seeking money and fame. Others believe that the film allowed impressionable minds to become easily influenced by its demonic plot. 
Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think if you are really susceptible to, you know, paranormal shit, if horror movies really, really, really get under your skin, it's going to be hard to shake that. And you are going to start to see parallels in your own family. And I can, I, I get that. I don't think yeah. you should take it to the news, but I do think that it can happen. Yeah. I, I wonder if with this particular one, if a lot of what happened was real. Because again, you have cops saying they did for sure see shit that creeped them the hell out. Yeah. Um, and if there was just a, also a lot of it that was exaggerated or fabricated by the daughters to keep it going. Because the, the another key thing that we haven't really, we briefly mentioned is that their mom was dirt poor. Like this was a poor ass family. Yes. And I'm sure when this was happening, they were getting some kind of money, something, you know, that was boosting them there for a little bit. And many of the daughters, and actually last podcast guys mentioned it, you know, it's established that their dad's not around. He, he slept around and left. Yeah. And by having these two, if you notice, male paranormal investigators around the house, they had kind of like a, a male figure. And if you have to wonder if some of this shit was exaggerated by the goals, especially to, you know, keep certain things that they were actually kind of enjoying in the house as long as possible. So you think this might have they the two girls might have fabricated this this thing to get a male role model to stick around? Possibly, it's something that the last podcast guys mentioned because it is like I said, you know, I mean, their dad was not in the picture, and their mom, you know, was working her ass off to keep a roof over their head they also could have maybe you know seen this as a way to make some money for the family well i don't know i don't think we'll ever really get a definitive answer here no they'll just do another interview on tv and apparently giggle and then another one's gonna say shut up yeah that's to me is straight up evidence like that remember you remember balloon boy remember that it's kind of ringing a bell there was like a like a weather balloon flew off this guy's house and the guy was like my son's in the basket and it was like on the news for like a day and a half and then the balloon crashed and the boy was actually in the attic of the house the whole time yeah and then when interviewed about it the dad like the kid said like well dad said we'd get a tv show out of it if i hit in the attic and dad's like oh oh, 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 little whippersnapper that's that's hilarious. And it turns out he faked the whole thing to get a reality show. Oh my God. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But I it reminds me a bit of that. Uh so what happened to the Hodgson family after the paranormal activity stopped? Uh when the press attention faded, the family faced various challenges. Janet married young after leaving home at 16 years old. Uh her younger brother Johnny died of cancer at 14. Oh, boy. Uh, the family's claims of something paranormal being present lasted in the, uh, all the way up until Peggy's death, at which time Janet's brother, Billy, moved out of the house. Janet, who, will be, who was 46 when The Conjuring 2 came out, lost a child herself, a son who died in his sleep at 18. God, a lot of young deaths in this family. Uh, she says she didn't want to resurrect the painful memories of the Enfield events when her mother was alive, but now... She feels ready to tell her story. Okay. Um, so how does the real Janet Hodgson feel about the movie? Uh, she was less than thrilled when she heard about the movie. 
She says, I wasn't very happy to hear about the film. I didn't know anything about it. My dad has just died, and it really upset me to think of all this being raked over again. Weird that nobody contacted her about this. Like, how does that work? If you're, I mean, she's in the movie. Like, the character of Janet Hodgson is her. So don't they have to, like, get her approval? Yeah, well, especially where Zen, they go all the way to talk to the family for the first movie. What, what was that? I said it's weird because then they go out of their way to talk to the family in the first movie. I don't know. Maybe. I I, I, I don't recall. Okay. I thought I read that they had gone like a little out of the way to talk to the family in the first film. Yeah, that's that's weird. But I mean, again, the, the film prequely establishes that they are using this to just kind of embellish a new more in Conjuring movie. That's true. So, last question. Do any of the families who've lived in the home since believe that it's haunted? So, after the real Peggy Hodgson passed away, Claire Bennett and her four sons moved into the Enfield home. Weird that it would be another single mother and four kids. Uh, Like Janet's younger brother, Billy, Claire claimed that she she always felt as if someone was watching her. During the night, her children would get woken up by voices coming from downstairs. Then she learned about the Enfield poltergeist. <laughs> you imagine finding out that the house you bought is the site of the most famous haunting in British history? <laughs> <coughs> oh my God. I'd move out immediately. It's like finding out you accidentally bought the Amityville house and you didn't know anything about that. <laughs> oh. The final straw came when her son Shaka woke up and saw a man enter his room. They moved out the next day after being in the house for only two months. Uh, So that's it. That's that's the Enfield Poltergeist, the real story. Uh, Is it as interesting as the movie? I would argue no, it's not. But that's, you know, sometimes fiction is crazier than fact. (laughs) Just a bit. (laughs) But still, you know, I think it's good when, you know, these films are based on true stories to analyze the true story and find out just how based on it really is. And it's say, I think I'd say about 40%. <laughs> that doesn't make it a bad movie. It just makes it a dishonest movie. Quite a bit. <laughs> Quite a bit. No, it's <coughs> right. It, uh, you know, even if they do embellish the amount of, you know, involvement the Warrens have, it did bring a lot of attention to this case. Uh, bring a lot of attention to this haunting because you know when the movie was coming out, people there's all these specials on the infield thing, and that's the good part when it comes to these like movies that are based off actual ones that there's a lot of attention brought to the actual case, True. so you get a lot of info without even trying leading up to it. We can get to see the the movie. That's true, but I think also you know when you shine a spotlight on these things, people start noticing the cracks. And like we just went through Enfield, like I, I think that's I'm pretty sure they made all this shit up. <laughs> that's, I don't know if this should be as celebrated of a story as it kind of is by the paranormal uh, community. And I would argue that the paranormal activity, not the paranormal community, sorry, is uh, kind of <coughs> willing to believe pretty much anything. Like it's I think because they're so hell bent on believing that they don't see the cracks. And if you can't, you know, if if you expect the 
a non-believers to take things on faith. I think you also have to be willing to fess up when something doesn't add up. I think you have to be, you know, you got to give to get on both sides. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm as a believer, I'm with you. Like I don't watch everything and go, Oh, that must be. Sometimes I'm on like, there's a show. Like, okay. For example, there's a show I like on Netflix called haunted that like tells like, you know, real life scary stories. Those one else they did with these two sisters were telling the story about how they grew up in this house out in the woods with their dad, who was uh, a serial killer. And he was super sadistic and abusive towards them. And he would bring women in to kill Holy this big shit. long thing. Yeah. And it sounds super intense, but then if you look it up, there's no police evidence. There's like nothing, nothing to back it up. People are like, well, you know, maybe the police know. I'm like, if women are missing in a town, <laughs> If anyone goes missing in town, there's going to be police evidence about reports of people going missing. Like, there's not even that. So I'm like, you know, when I looked at it, I'm like, this one may have been bullshit that they made up for the show. That sucks. Um, so, you know, you know, I get it. And um, it's not even the paranormal community, man. Like, the, crypt- the crypto oh, yeah. community is the same fucking way. <laughs> My, uh, like for those of you who listened to the sneak preview, uh, if you listen to the episode we did on Zack Snyder's Justice League, then you all will have met my father, uh, Tony Ezegari. Uh Smart guy, nice guy, the most like crazy Bigfoot believer I've ever known in my life. Like he is 100% convinced on, on the Squatch. And uh, he, he's like, he shows me videos of like dudes in fucking monkey costumes walking around. And he's like, that's evidence. And I'm like, is it though? <laughs> so I'm not quite convinced, but I appreciate the dedication. But you're right. It is, it is tough for people who are so in the rabbit hole to find their way out. Love you, dad. <laughs> yeah, it, it can be tough because sometimes, like like Loch Ness, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't actually think that thing is bullshit. Everything they pull up, I'm like, no, 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 no. I was, <laughs> I was obsessed with the Loch Ness monster as a kid. I was so fascinated with the idea that there's like a real life dinosaur walking around out there or swimming around, and walking. Why not? Yeah. Well, apparently, it comes up on land from time to time. Uh, despite you know nobody seeing the like six ton dinosaur walking around the banks of the most famous lake in Scotland, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> but just you know all the times they've you know dredged the lake or done sonar scans and they don't find shit. Like a lake's a finite area. I mean, yeah, there's caverns underneath, but this thing is supposed to be a dinosaur. It's huge, <laughs> so. I don't know. I think that that might be, you know, some horseshit started by a dentist in the 1910s who took a very blurry photograph. Oh, <laughs> oh that's sad. I, I wish there was magic in the world where there could be just dinosaurs walking around. But no, there's not. Well, maybe Megalodon. There's been some creepy shit with that involved that makes me wonder if that's actually real. Oh, the ocean, like there could be fucking... Lovecraftian gods down there. I don't know. That thing's too deep. It scares me. I don't like the ocean. <laughs> yeah. You're talking to like big shark, the like the least crazy thing I think is down there. <laughs> yeah. I mm, I don't trust the ocean. 
Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a scary. I have nightmares about the fucking ocean. Like every, you know, we find ex, like previously thought extinct creatures alive all the time. It's it's freaky. Like un, you know, creatures that don't look normal, like translucent fish and shit like that. Like it's an evil place that we should not be going. Like we don't we have no business being down there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, all right. Enfield haunting. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say no. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that's has me on the fence is the the cop statements and the family, new family moving in, then moving out. But it sounds like with that family, a lot of that was made up. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, maybe you know, it could have been a hoax that turned into something real, or. Something real started and then it didn't keep going and they had to make it up as they went along. I don't know. Maybe it's not entirely a hoax, but I do think it's mostly a hoax. I, I think it's mostly a hoax. Yeah. I'm excited to do this exact thing on the sneak preview for Conjuring 3. This is fun. Oh, that's right. Because that is also based off. Uh, you know what? As long as the ones are actually involved in that case. Apparently they were. I remember reading about this case. The only instance where like demonic possession was entered into actual criminal court <laughs> i mean that's that's going to be very interesting yeah how bored was the jury that day they just went all right yeah fuck it let's just uh we'll accept that as a possible case <laughs> yeah i didn't know you could plead you know guilty by reason of demon that's pretty awesome i wonder how many other people have tried that shit <laughs> wasn't me it was the devil <laughs> sure okay <laughs> uh <laughs> So, The Conjuring 2 is, of course, the first sequel to 2013's The Conjuring. And in the Conjuring Universe chronology, it follows 2014's Annabelle and is followed by 2017's Annabelle Creation. Uh, I've seen them all. Uh, I, the, the first two Conjurings, easily the best, followed by, I would, I think, Annabelle Creation. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Creation's uh, really good. Um, I remember we both, we saw Annabelle 1 together. I remember both of us walking out really disappointed. Well, first, I remember we were trying to see Tusk, and then, like, they took it out of the theater that day because no one bought tickets, and they were like, fuck it, let's get rid of it. So we were like, all right, I guess we'll see Annabelle. <laughs> and, yeah, it was kind of disappointing. Apart from that one scene in, like, the basement with, like, the demon Wendigo thing, that was creepy. But other than that, pretty weak movie. Yeah. And then, did, did you see Annabelle Comes Home? I did. I thought it was okay. I liked it more than Animal, but not nearly as much as Creation. Yep, same boat. I thought for the idea they had, they really went, like, predictable with it. It was, I, I felt, like, I called all the scares. I feel like they didn't go as far as they could go with the idea. And uh, then there's La Llorona, this, like, redheaded stepchild that nobody really even knows is connected to these movies. Yeah, that one's so weird to me. And I think one of my biggest issues with that movie is they you want to talk about like so you know, everyone calls you know the whole whitewashing in Hollywood nowadays. I'm like, no one calls out La Llorona. The fact that that's a movie that's very steeped in Mexican folklore and transplants all of its shit over into Los Angeles <laughs> to a white family. Okay, I'm just gonna go on and play the social justice warrior on this one. <laughs> like in my um my junior year of college, I, uh, my fourth year of Spanish, we had to act out 
uh, we had to do a play of sorts. Like we got partnered up and we had to do like a skit in Spanish. And I didn't know anyone in the class. I got partnered with this girl named Margarita who I'd never, who I didn't really know at all. And she suggested we do the story of La Llorona. And I'm like, well, what is that Margarita? <laughs> and she explained the story of La Llorona. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Murder. All right, let's do this. And we acted out La Llorona and I had to be like the guy who like cheats on the girl and then she kills herself and her children. <laughs> I had to be the like vaquero kind of guy. It was really funny. <laughs> I just do not have that personality at all. It was I, I couldn't like memorize it. I had note cards in my palm and I'm just like, ah, it was great. <laughs> I more entertaining than the movie. <laughs> It was just like, and it's funny because like I remember when they they cast Linda Cardellini for that movie. I'm a, a big fan of hers, and I was like, oh, cool, Linda Cardellini, she's awesome. And yeah, I remember watching it. And I really liked that whole opening that explains La Llorona. And then it's like, all right, now let's go to Los Angeles. Let's get out of the very because the I'm like, and it bugs me. And I was like, well, Los Angeles has a huge, you know, Hispanic population. I'm like, yeah, but would you rather your very specifically Mexican folklore tarot take place in Mexico or Los Angeles? You tell me which one, because there is a fucking right and wrong answer to this. <laughs> well, I do, I do get putting it in America in a Hispanic uh, neighborhood because this is Hollywood. And if things don't happen in America, they don't happen. Uh, however, making it about a white family, that's fucked up. Yeah, at least like Pronar Activity, the marked ones, it stayed like Hispanic. Yeah. But th- this is traditionally a Mexican folktale. Let it happen to a Mexican family, like not the white social worker. I mean, that's just. Yeah. Weird. That's fucking. It happens to the right social worker, and then you go down a very predictable fucking plot, followed by an obligatory scene to make it tie into the fucking conjuring because, you know, they couldn't decide if they wanted it to or not. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not. It's honestly like right behind a certain other film I know that you like, but I fucking despise for me that we'll talk about soon. Oh, yeah. Can't talk about The Conjuring Universe without bringing up The Nun, which is the direct spinoff of The Conjuring 2. So we will be bringing that up towards the end of the show. So Conjuring 2 is directed by James Wan, who directed the first film, as well as Saw, Insidious, Dead Silence, Furious 7, Aquaman, and the upcoming Malignant. He's one of the most successful names in horror these days and has effectively started three of the most financially successful horror franchises in history. He's kind of the go-to guy these days for like reliable, badass horror films. Yeah, and I just point out all three franchises that are still ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> Spiral had a new one come out this year. We're looking at the third Conjuring this year. There's a confirmed fifth Insidious coming out. Like, none of these are dead yet. <laughs> And we know nothing about Malignant, which just increases the mystique for me. I'm really excited for that because I don't know what it is. Yeah, I'm excited because it sounds like a return to his like indie type of horror. Like this is something very original and different and unique he's giving us. I'm very excited when he does with it. Same. Patrick Wilson returns (laughs) as Ed Warren, paranormal investigator. Wilson is an accomplished character actor who has also appeared in such films as Watchmen, Hard Candy. In the Tall Grass, Insidious, The Phantom of the Opera, Aquaman, Bone Tomahawk, and the second season of FX's Fargo, just to name a few. 
he's a fantastic character actor and he is really good as ed warren yeah i like him a lot i am i'm a big fan of the relationship he's formed with james bond between the conjuring and insidious franchises because i know he's actually directing the upcoming one. Oh, cool i didn't know that upcoming insidious not conjuring upcoming insidious yeah um and I think I read what I read is that it's supposed to be actually the family from the first film. It's like the kids all grown up going to college is the storyline. Oh. So I like that he's doing that. He does, yeah, he's consistently good. Like I've, he's one of those actors that never gives a half-hearted performance in what he does. And he's awesome in the Conjuring movies. I, I love him a lot in these two movies. He was my favorite part of Aquaman. I thought he killed it as Ocean Master. He was, I thought he was really good. Uh, yeah, reliable, really cool guy. Uh, Oscar nominee Vera Farmiga returns as Lorraine Warren, psychic paranormal investigator. Farmiga was nominated for her performance in 2009's Up in the Air and has appeared in such films as Orphan, The Departed, The Front Runner, Captive State, The Judge, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters. She also played Norma Bates on the psycho prequel series Bates Motel. And yeah, she's also fantastic. She and Wilson have great uh, chemistry. I believe it. Yeah, no, there. That's one thing I've always liked with the, the the two Conjuring films. Their chemistry is amazing. Like you believe they're a married couple that love each other, regardless of again how you think of the ones in real life. Um, you believe their relationship big time, and yeah, Vera Farmer has always been a consistently good actress as well. I mean, I've. She's on a ton of horror films I like a lot that she's in. Not the biggest fan of Bates Motel, um, but she's really good in it. I gave that show one episode and it couldn't it couldn't get me, so I I stopped. I gave it like I watched the first season. I tried the second season, but it gets so tied up in a drug storyline that I just I didn't care. That's a shame. I thought she was fantastic in The Departed. You know, holding her own against you know Matt Damon and Leo. No easy feat, but she did a great job. Yeah. She's really good in Orphan. I like her. I like that movie a lot, actually. I've not yet seen Orphan. Oh, it's a good one. Uh, Frances O'Connor plays terrified mother Peggy Hodgson. Some of her other film appearances include Timeline, AI, Artificial Intelligence, The Hunter, Bedazzled, and Mansfield Park. And I completely forgot she's the girl Brendan Fraser has a crush on in Bedazzled. Allison. Like, oh, I never, yeah. I never realized that till like today. And I'm like, I just keep thinking about the wish he makes to be more sensitive. And he's like the guy constantly crying at the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> the movie's ridiculous, but it, it's got its moments. Yeah. And I mean, it has Brendan Fraser. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> remember the, the basketball player wish? <laughs> no, it's been a while since so I've seen that movie now. He makes a wish to be like a very powerful athlete and he's turned into like a seven foot two basketball player. And he's like being interviewed and he just keeps saying the same dumbass answer. Like we, well, we work, uh, we work hard and we play hard. And I think we played really good tonight. Like he's saying that. And then he goes to the locker room and he finds out that the bad part of the wish is he has a very tiny dick now. <laughs> it's yeah. It's always, you know, you make a wish with the devil, there's going to be consequences. <laughs> um. Madison Wolf plays Janet Hodgson, the unfortunate focus of the evil spirit. Wolf has also appeared in such films as Trumbo, Joy, Keanu, Devil's Do, and I Kill Giants. So pretty accomplished uh, resume for uh, someone who thinks like 
at this point, what, 15, 16 at this point? Yeah. It's really cow. Good for him. Lauren Esposito plays Margaret Hodgson, Janet's older sister. This is pretty much the only notable thing Esposito has appeared in thus far. Sorry to fans of the 2019 direct-to-video sci-fi channel rip-off disaster porn movie, Arctic Apocalypse. (laughs) 2.1 on IMDb. (laughs) Well, you know, you can't, they can't all be winners. Simon McBurney plays Morris Gross, the first believer of the family. McBurney has also appeared in such films as The Last King of Scotland, Jane Eyre, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Allied, and The Theory of Everything. I knew I recognized his voice. He was Stephen Hawking's dad in The Theory of Everything. That's where I knew him. I'm not seeing that movie, so. Incredibly sad, but also very uplifting. It's a very good movie. Uh, Finally, Bob Adrian plays the ghost of Bill Wilkins. Some of Adrian's other film appearances include 12 Monkeys, Jungle Fever, and Spider-Man Homecoming as the indispensable character of Yelling Man. (laughs) The Conjuring 2 has an IMDb score of 7.3, Rotten Tomatoes score of 80%. It grossed $320 million on a budget of only $40 million. Fantastic. It had one direct spinoff in 2018's The Nun and has a direct sequel coming out on Friday. So, The Conjuring Dose. Let's, let's dig into this. So, first off, this movie had me hooked pretty much immediately by starting with the fucking Amityville horror. Yeah. It, considering they won't give us a movie with the Warrens investigating the Amityville house for some reason, like they're just very adverse to doing that. I like that we at least got that opening with it. Yeah. And it yeah. was a, it was a really cool opening that sets up like the events going forward for the Warrens at least. Well, I just love the, you know, panning back any horror fans going to recognize those windows. And that was exciting. Like, oh shit, we're in Amityville. And then her saying like this is as close to hell as I ever want to get. That is creepy. <laughs> love it. <coughs> I loved the bit of Ed and Lorraine on the talk show where that like really arrogant guy is just saying like, oh, they're fucking hacks. Like just right next, right to their face, calling them liars. And Ed's like, what are you gonna do about it? What, you wanna throw down? Like he's willing to just, he's ready to go. Well, and that again, when we're talking about like how great those two are together in this movie, like they do so many moments. And this is something I like about James Bond that he does, pulls off really well. Is character development mixed with uh, good scares without yeah. one really being better than the other. It's evenly matched. And it's like, this is a scene right here. because It does a really good job of, again, signifying how much, how strong their love is. Because for him, it's not even really, you can tell it's not about like them being called that on show. It's, you're going after my wife and I want to fucking kill you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have some goddamn class. You don't go after a man's wife on national television like that. <laughs> I love Patrick Wilson's super 70s sideburns, like to constantly remind us that we're, we're in the 70s. <laughs> Just, like, that's impressive. Everything from like how Wilson talks in this, in these two movies and his sideburns, like he really just embraces being a man in the 70s. Yeah. I feel like Farmiga is like on this other plane where she's like, I am psychic and I know more than you do. Like at all times, you know, like she's kind of just like, Almost floating through the movie. 
Yeah. Minus that the talk show scene. You can't see her if you pay attention to her. She's like trying to tell Ed to be quiet. Like, Ed, stop. It's okay. Ed, Ed, calm down. <laughs> Don't kill the man on TV. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I love that. His his go-to is like, what? What are you gonna do about it? <laughs> the guy's just like, oh please. And he's like, Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go. You you wanna go? I'll go. It's great. And then later he's like, I have fucking had it. Like, he doesn't want to be famous. He just wants to help people. I like that. I don't know if that's true about the real Ed Warren, but according to sources, it, it, I don't think it was. So we go to, I kind of don't like that they use London Calling to take us to London. I feel like every movie that goes from America to London uses that goddamn song. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of like a throwback to the use of music in the first one to give us like a time placement, even though they tell you in the first movie, like, this is the time period it takes place in. <laughs> uh, they could have like not done the music like it, you could have just put up on the screen that we're in Britain. Like, I'm not against music. I just think they should have used a different song because that one's so overused. Um. So we, we meet the Hodgson family. Janet's going through some you know stuff at school. Her, her friend is smoking, and so is literally everybody else because it's 1978. Uh, <laughs> so I don't see the, the outrage. You're smoking cigarettes two years before you should really be smoking cigarettes. Oh, my God. You know, everyone smokes cigarettes at this time in life. I love when the teacher catches them and then just takes a long drag on that, on that fat daddy. It's great. Uh, <laughs> so we established these characters mom's in a tight spot she's got four kids dad left after knocking up the girl down the street real piece of shit and the house is falling apart and she's just done with this shit the last thing she needs is a fucking ghost <laughs> and then it happens i i love the um the fire truck coming out of the tent and the kid going to investigate it and then the tent just fucking screaming at him that dude if i was a kid and that shit happened i would have ran outside not to my parents outside that was horrifying i mean good guy and it wasn't just like a ah it was like a, a guttural scream <laughs> oh yeah that was fucking that was haunting uh i think before that or after that when janet's having like the fucking like late night convo mm. just sounds on her bed and you can hear her changing the pitch of her voice if I was like the sister in that moment, not sleep in that room anymore, I can tell you that much. Well, and then when Janet sleepwalks downstairs and you just he pops up behind her, my house. Like, mm, Jesus. I jumped a few times with this movie, and I've seen this before. Like you just, you know, it's one of those movies that just gets under your skin. Yeah, well, it gets under your skin. And uh one thing I noted in my notes. Uh, Ron is like has some really excellent fucking tracking shots and like camera work in these films. Like the way he just like he doesn't cut. If you notice, he doesn't really cut a lot. It's all like tracking shots into rooms and yeah. behind characters to set up the scares. Like his his camera work for these movies and even in Insidious, and to the extent the first Saw film, it well actually probably yeah to the first Saw film kind of set the way for how we would get that rapid fire editing. Um. You know, he he's a fucking master with that camera and getting you set up for the scare. I agree, because he's a good director. He's not just, you know, a great horror filmmaker. He's a good director who knows how to craft a good movie. 
horror is really secondary to what he's doing. He's crafting good movies. Yeah. I also love and appreciate his use of like making games scary in both of these. But the first movie, it was the hide and go clap thing. And in the second movie, it's the crooked man. Yeah. He does a really good job of turning childhood things into absolute nightmares. I was like, just kind of like how Eli Roth apparently does not like traveling. Does, does James Wan not like kids toys? Did he had a traumatizing experience? Well, I mean, at the end, like Dead Silence, you know, Ventriloquist Dummy. There's another child's toy. <laughs> Billy the Puppet in the Saw franchise. There you go. Yeah, I think this. I think he had a very bad experience in a toy store when he was a kid, and he's been it's been following him ever since. <laughs> um, I love when the. Like when Janet wakes up and Margaret's like, the fuck are you doing? I'm trying to sleep. And then the bed starts shaking. And then Peggy's like, what are you doing? I'm trying to sleep. And then the drawer flies into the door. Like it wastes no time in making, you know, believers out of pretty much everybody. And I like that. Yeah. Um, I really like, again, it made me laugh. And I know it's based off like we talked about earlier, but when like all that weird shit's happening and like they go to the neighbor's house that night, and they're like, well, the cops are in our place. And he was like, well, I called the cops, which is a very kind neighborly thing to do. I should point out, like, he's very quick on the trial here. Like, oh, shit's going on. Let me get the cops involved. <laughs> and uh, they go in and they're just like, clearly like, oh, we just got called for nothing type of attitude. Like, nothing's here. And like that paranormal shit happens in front of them. And immediately just go, okay, bye. <laughs> just, we'll go get someone else, but we're out. It reminded me so much of the cops investigating their the house in what we do in the shadows when like they like trick the cops and not seeing anything dark and they're just kind of looking around like, well, what's this? That's not up to code. <laughs> Gave off that same vibe. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but on Lorraine's bookshelf, like shortly after that scene, when we go to Lorraine and, you know, we meet the nun for the second time, uh, there's a bunch of letters on her bookshelf and they spell out Valak. I did not notice that. Yeah. There's like a V here and a here and then like it's all spread out, but it, if you look at it left to right, it's Valak. Kind of cool. Like we're kind of telling you ahead of time, like that's the name. Okay. Thought that was neat. And it is interesting how they kind of tie together the, you know, fictional subplot of the demon nun with the Enfield haunting and actually make it work. Uh, weird to do that, you know, with with a true story, but worked out. Yeah, I, they make it work, but at the same time, that was one my only other minor complaint was that I felt like at times they tried too hard to put in stuff for spinoffs. Yeah, for a haunting that again they were only there for like a day for. Like, well, I feel like the first one did the same thing with Annabelle the doll at the beginning of the movie, and then that was it. Yeah, but it's still there. Like we could take that out, and nothing really changes of the first movie. Yeah, but again, that was only at the beginning. This one was like integral to the plot line. <laughs> I wonder what part three is gonna have on the side. <laughs> Seeing like the crooked man, shit, we're not going to see. <laughs> Which that was, hmm? that was a creepy scene with the dog at the neighbor's house. Oh fuck! When it turns into the crooked man, <laughs> oh my god. I did not expect that. I, I guess I, I blocked that part out the first time I saw this because that 
completely caught me by surprise. Mm. Yeah, I do. I have a cat, but I looked at my cat like I swear to God, you do something like this to me, I'm, I you're not staying here anymore. Well, I love that the crooked man is not a CGI creation. It's a dude. Uh, let me find his name. Uh, he's a very tall, lanky guy who makes a living out of playing very tall, lanky, freaky creatures. Uh, and I loved him as the crooked man. Javier Botet, that's his name. Uh, he has also played uh, the hobo in It, uh, Mama in the movie Mama, mm -hmm. uh, the big toe corpse in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Slender Man in the Slender Man movie. Ugh. Hey, it's. I'm sure that the character is still pretty creepy. I've uh, seen the movie. It's not, but go on. The dude is six foot seven. God, <laughs> I thought he was. I, I for some reason I thought he may have been in that one you were telling me about on Shutter. Was it any anything for Jackson or whatever? Oh, that trick or treat. Yeah. Uh, no, he wasn't in that. No. Okay. <laughs> oh, thanks for bringing that up again. That that was nice. That was. God, that was one of those like flip on the lights really fast moments for me. That got that got me immediately. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the way the crooked man's done, like just the, the whole toy is creepy enough. But then to have this thing just freak out and you know, in a deep voice recite the weird rhyme twice, like it came back at the end. Like God. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Uh, I thought that regardless of whether or not you think it's true, I thought that the way they did Janet's possession in the movie, it's super creepy. The way the voice changes, you, you believe it. If that's how the, the way it went down, then that, that fucking happened, but it didn't. No, no, they, they do a good job. Like uh, the two different interviews, right? Like the one in, for TV and they, she starts talking like Billy and you actually see like her teeth look like his, like they do a very physical change. That's very subtle, but you notice. Yeah, And then when the ones come over and do their interview and they're like, well, you can't look at her and they turn away. And if you don't, if you're not paying attention, you won't notice because it's like really out of focus in the background. Yeah, But if you're paying attention to the background, you will see her change from a little girl to Billy, talk like him. And then towards the end, when she's going back to herself, you'll see her change back to her uh, little girl herself. You got to pay attention. I know it's like out of focus, but you can see it. Creepy. That's creepy stuff. I love the big reveal at the end when Ed realizes that the thing was speaking in code and like he put the message together and Bill is yelling, help me, it won't let me go. Like that was unnerving as shit. <laughs> Basically, this ghost doesn't want to haunt anyone. It wants to be in peace. But the fucking nun is like, no, 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 no. It's my game. <laughs> Creepy shit. Uh, interesting. So Valak, the nun, is the real villain here and has been like hellbent on taking out Lorraine Warren for some reason. Never yeah. really made all that clear why this thing hates Lorraine so much. She didn't exercise it the first time in the nun. No, I don't really understand. It's not really made clear why that like i will wants to um take out lorraine i mean the most i got 
don't know. Like, I will say Valak's the creepiest to me in this movie than at any point in the Nun, but I was also super bored throughout the Nun. Um, but yeah, it's very unclear motivations with what Valak wants. I kind of just got the vibe that Ed and Lorraine Warren have a rep in hell as like, you know, fucking Ghostbusters. So anyone who can take them out will be considered a hero in hell. That's the vibe I got. Okay. Yeah. I'll take created, it. I created my own subplot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I- the scene where all the crosses invert is creepy. Uh, you know, it was in the trailer, so it was it was expected, but it's still creepy. And like the whole really the whole final act is done really well. It's kind of you know similar to a lot of other ghost movie th- final acts when you know it's in the house and it won't let anybody else in the house and it's blowing up furniture and shit. But James Wan kind of takes these like tired old tropes, and I don't know what he does to them to make them feel rejuvenated. But he has he did it with both of these films, and I don't know how right i think him and i think the big thing is because of that balance of scares and character development he does such a good job making you care about the characters you're watching that when you get to those scenes um you're you're in because a lesser horror film would not have you if you don't care about those characters when you watch a scene that you've seen in a thousand hour horror movies you're just gonna be bored like oh okay whatever but if you care enough because i mean think about like you know you had the little scene on the talk show we talked about and then another like really sweet kind of quiet moment for the film is when uh, Ed plays that Elvis song. Mm-hmm. And then he's clearly looking out of the rain and singing it for her. And it's a really sweet moment between those two. So then again, when you get to that end extravaganza, right, you you're in, you're locked, you're, you're feeling it. And you're with the, you're in that scene as much as the characters are. That's a good point. That makes sense. I'll buy it. Uh, any other th- Scenes you'd like to highlight from Conjuring 2? Uh, I don't think so. I actually think we covered a lot of it. Oh, I did think uh, that fucking scene when they find Janet in like the crawl space or the fuck that space was, that yeah. fucking creeps me out because she is in a weird position that's just not fun to look at. Yeah, that was that felt inspired by The Exorcist, uh, possibly. Contortion is is weird. <laughs> it's always weird. Uh, well, here are some filmgasm facts about The Conjuring 2. Number one, a theater about to have a showing of The Conjuring 2 had a poster that said, quote, warning, the film you are about to see is psychologically and emotionally disturbing. People who have attended early screenings of the film have complained about many unusual circumstances that they have experienced after seeing the film. And to support the theory added on the poster was, quote, due to our concern for your well-being, we have invited Father Perez to be here. He will be available after the film to provide spiritual support and or conduct a personal blessing should you feel the need. Please do not hesitate to seek help. Ask a representative where you can sign up for a session with our priest. So some theater went full-blown Hitchcock, like this is the scariest thing to ever walk this earth. Please seek help afterwards. <laughs> That's awesome. miss it. <laughs> well, when I was Googling, like, you know, I Googled a movie to get to IMDb and Wikipedia and whatever I need. First thing that came up is, is The Conjuring 2 a dangerous movie? And I, I clicked that because I'm like, what does that mean? 
And it said that, yes, a lot of people have experienced weird, like weird phenomena after watching this film. And I'm like, well, I just watched it and no. <laughs> That's horseshit. This movie's been in my collection for years. Nothing's ever gone down. And I can tell you right, it's been four hours since I watched it. Nothing's happened. <laughs> On a whole day for me. I love that people see like demon movies as like summoning the devil. Like I wish I had that kind of crazy imagination, <laughs> but no. <laughs> uh, number two, James Wan was offered a quote, life altering amount of money to direct the fate of the furious. However, he turned it down to direct the conjuring Two instead quote. I feel rejuvenated to tell a scary story. One more time. He wrote on Instagram. So he turned down Buko bucks to do Conjuring 2. That's that's pretty cool. You don't want to know you didn't want to deal with Vin Diesel and his family anymore. <laughs> you would rather make a movie with the devil than Vin Diesel again. I get it. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people think similar things. <laughs> I love that. They like they loved him so much like, dude, do you want to come back and do the next one? He's like, no, I'm gonna go do Conjuring 2. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I can picture him like and Patrick Wilson having lunch just talking about like, yeah, you won't believe how crazy of an asshole he is. Like just talking about it. <laughs> uh, boy. Number three, some have claimed that the real Janet Hodgson is a gifted ventriloquist or has the power to manipulate voices. And she admitted to faking some events. She revealed that around 2% of the haunting was phony during an interview with the Telegraph. We talked a bit about that at the beginning, but 2% of any percent of any haunting being fake invalidates the whole fucking thing. <laughs> I don't think, and I don't think that's a crazy chance to take. 98% for sure, but it was like 2%. We kind of like fibbed a little bit. <laughs> I, I can picture that. Like, yeah, we made a little mistake and uh, turns out it's all fake. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, so 2018's The Nun follows mm. the origins of the film's villain, the demon Valak. It stars Vera Farmiga's younger sister, Tysa Farmiga, and Oscar nominee Demian Bashir as a nun and a priest investigating this. Honestly, I haven't seen it in f- three years now. It didn't really make much of an impact. I thought it was good at the time. I have not wanted to go back. I thought it was weird that they're going to cast Vera Farmiga's younger sister and not have her be somehow related to Lorraine Warren. <laughs> it, I watched, it took me two or three separate tries to watch it because I fell asleep on it the first time I saw it. And then I, I know it three because I fell asleep the second time I put it on. I was like, oh my God. So I finally watched it one day the whole way through and I just went, this movie shit. I, I did not like the nun. I thought it was boring as fuck. It most of the best scares were in the trailer, and the story does nothing to really validate why this fucking thing's going after the Warrens. Well, what the whole like having the blood of Christ in like a secret bottle? You didn't think that was interesting? No. Yeah, that was kind of weird to just introduce like blood of Christ being like a kill all to the nun and then having the fucking thing pop up in the conjuring too. Like it never even happened. Yeah. It, and that was, I think for me when I was like, okay, maybe we don't need spinoff films, maybe yeah. just making conjuring films. Cause so far it's the only good thing you're making. 
Possibly. Well, you know, The Nun will come up on this show eventually. I plan to do all the Conjuring films in some capacity. So we'll get to that. I give The Conjuring 2 an 8. Just as creepy and intriguing as the first film features great character development and a lot of memorable monsters. No, uh, agreed. I give it an eight. It Juan continues to show why he's such a, a a force in the genre. You know, he gives great character development, great scares, yeah. never sacrificing one for the other, and just makes a generally engaging horror films. Um, Straight up, I agree. Good stuff. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Next week we go back to Josh for another horror cult classic. A summer camp is hit by a series of increasingly grisly and violent murders after timid, shy Angela Baker arrives at the camp. Find out who or what is causing these murders in the 1983 cult classic Sleepaway Camp. I've not yet seen it, and I'm looking forward to giving it a chance. Sleepaway Camp, how is it? Uh, Josh, I actually also showed me the movie. Um, I was, I'm a big fan. I think it's, I think it's really good. Um, you know, it gave us a you know, horror icon, Felisa Rose. Um, who um, she she's still active in the genre. She's in what the fourth Hatchet movie, uh, and it's good. You know, twist aside, some of that's like the main thing people latch onto with this movie. Um, twist aside, it has a lot of really cool, inventive kills, weird, zany, just only the eighties could give us type of characters. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. I like it. Sweet, I can't wait. Don't miss Rear Window on Oscar Sunday and, of course, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It on Monday Sneak Preview. Until then, don't challenge any demon nuns to a name game and keep watching movies. Mm-hmm.